Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. I am Matt Carpenter, and I'm joined today by Dr. Joel Bierman. Dr. Bierman is professor of systematic theology at Concordia Seminary, and he's written several books. The one we're going to talk about today is called Holy Citizens, H W H O L L Y, Holy Citizens. Dr. Bierman, thank you for joining us today. My great pleasure. So, in your book, you present a view of the relationship of the church or uh, of, of the two realms, as, as Luther projects it. And it's it often goes by the two kingdom perspective. So we'll get into the nuances of this. But in our circles, when we when many hear two kingdoms, they think, oh, you mean sit down and shut up, Christian. You have nothing to say unless it's inside the walls of the church. So just in brief, what was your reason for writing this book? Yeah, my, my reason is exactly as you're beginning to articulate it. Um, I, I, I'm a Lutheran, have been my whole life, um, was taught about the two kingdoms. And was when I was taught the two kingdoms, it was pretty much kind of a, um, a Jeffersonian church, state, wall of separation in between. And I always kind of assumed that a good Lutheran makes a good American and they kind of are quite compatible. And it was when I started really reading Luther that I became to question this and thinking about it a little more differently. And then when I learned later on in my life that the two kingdoms terminology was actually coined by Karl Barth disparaging the Lutheran teaching because he blamed it for the um, rise and the the disaster of the Third Reich or the disastrous response of the German Christians. And that was in, very enlightening. And then it became more evident to me why it was that so few people actually talked about Lutheran two kingdoms because they were embarrassed by it and were ashamed of the, the crisis that it had helped precipitate. And that all perplexed me because when I read Luther, I didn't hear him saying those things at all. And so my reason for writing my book was to, essentially to um, bring Luther's actual teaching to the fore and help people to come to better understanding of it. And to do that significantly, well, intentionally, not significantly, but to do it deliberately by not using his usual go-to documents, the temporal authority to what extent it should be obeyed and can soldiers to be saved. But instead, I picked something from a little later in his career. Um, on a little commentary on Psalm 82, where he actually unpacks all of his teaching very clearly and makes it exceedingly clear that what he is up to is not a bifurcated kingdom of the right, kingdom of the left, kingdom of the state, and kingdom of the church, then neither the twain shall meet except in the area of common law or natural law. And other than that, they stay apart. I began to um, recognize that this was not Luther's teaching at all, and that he was actually far more nuanced. And I thought, this needs to be ex explored, and this needs to be taught. And so that's what prompted me to actually write my book. So the, so the, the Protestant, what I hear you saying is the Protestant version of two realms or two kingdoms. I know as espoused by Calvin, 
and, and, and many of the, the, the Swiss reformed men. But you're also saying by Luther is not the, the parent of modern Jeffersonian church state separation, then it's, it's something much more closely intertwined. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, and I I just, what we should address right now, this realms kingdom thing too. Um, Kingdoms is a fine translation of the German, you know, regiment. It works. Um, My, my problem with kingdoms is I think it's just kind of like poisoned terminology. It has, has all this connotation with it. Everybody assumes, oh, I know what that means. And I'm quite convinced most people don't know what it means. And so that's why I'm deliberate about using realms instead. In English, it helps because it's like, that's weird. Um, Bonhoeffer liked to use the term spheres to try to get across a little something, you know, a little different. But he uh, he, kind of, he kind of castigates that too for good reasons. But that's another topic. Um, so it was actually one of my colleagues, Dr. Bob Kolb, who told me, you know, realms is maybe a better way to use this. And some people are using this. And so I kind of latched onto that. And so I try to be very consistent. I use two realms because I want to bring a different emphasis to this than the um, old understanding of two kingdoms. So that's what I'm kind of doing there. And and I will try. From well, that's fine. I I, 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 have some, I I fall back in the kingdoms myself sometimes. And so it's just, you know, habits are habits. Right. So what then for, 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 for me, the first time I heard this, my struggle was the question of if there are, if there are two realms, mm-hmm. what is the relationship of Christ to these realms? Because we know he is the head of the church. The apostle Paul says that specifically, but when you don't know what the other realm includes, and even I know I said he's head of the church, but but there's a lot to unpack here. So what is the relationship of Christ to the two realms? So maybe first of all, you could say what answer, what are the two realms? Because it's not church and state as we think of it. So what are the two realms and what is the relationship to those realms? All right. Uh, that's a good place to start. I'll try to do a, bit of a thumbnail sketch of how I see the two realms playing out. What I would say Luther would understand of this. And then we'll talk about um, how Christ fits into each in its in distinct ways. So the two realms basically is seeking to answer a question. How does God work in the world today? Um, and, and I think I found it very helpful as I think about systematic or doctrinal distinctions to ask, the, you know, what am I trying to figure out here? What, what's the point of this distinction? And Lutheranism is, is replete with distinctions. We love distinctions. I'm convinced these come out of good theology. Uh, our distensions, distinctions, um, du- dualities, whatever term you like. Um, <clears throat> dichotomies, maybe. Um, so I think these are helpful because we recognize there's these often these tensions built into how we do theology. And so <clears throat> the two realms is trying to answer the question, how does God work? And the answer is, well, God works in two very distinct ways. He works in one way to deliver the grace of the forgiveness of sins, righteousness before him, new life, the assurance of eternal life, the participation in his kingdom that, called the church, that's one way he works, and he works that way in what we would call the 
what Luther calls the spiritual realm, what sometimes we might call the right hand realm and the right hand being the hand of blessing of God. And so this is the hand where he's working to deliver forgiveness of sins and make me right so that I have full, complete forgiveness of sins. This is where things like um, the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, this is where this runs the show. And God has appointed a institution responsible to make sure this happens. That's called the church. And so the church's task is to deliver this good news of the gospel to the world. And so this is where gospel runs the show and gospel is doing its thing of delivering free forgiveness of sins through word and through sacrament. Here it comes, get, grace is delivered and we are made new people. That's the work of the right hand. Now, the work of the temporal realm, though, is the fact that we have a world that God has created that he loves. It's, it's the, in fact, it's the object of his work of redemption that he has, has done in Christ of the gospel. He's done it for the sake of the world that he created, a physical, tangible, material world filled with people and families and kids and relationships and interactions. And this is a good world that God loves, and he wants it to function a certain way. In fact, he has ordered it, structured it, designed it to work a certain way according to his will. And that will is manifest, we would call it, the law. The law of God, which is nothing more than the will of God, formula of Concord in the book of Concord defines it that way, that the law is nothing more than the will of God for the right functioning of his creation. He loves his creation. He cares about it. He didn't make it just so Jesus had somewhere to come. He made it because he loves it. And it's the object of his activity. So he makes this beautiful world and then sin destroys it. Hence the need for the gospel to redeem what's been destroyed by sin and to make it right again. But the really cool thing now starts to happen when we recognize that Jesus comes for the sake of that temporal realm to bring it back to God, the Father. So it's not lost in sin, but it's brought back into a right relationship. So that temporal realm is also the object of God's care and concern. But the temporal realm now is functioning just to make sure that the world works the way it should, the way it is supposed to function. And this side of the fall, we know that this world is shot through with sin. And even though Christ has redeemed it, it's still a sinful world. And so God has established a institution to make sure that this temporal world functions the way it's supposed to function according to his will and to bring it more nearly in line with his justice while we wait for the full restoration, which will come only at Christ's second coming. Now, I'm moving fast and confusing a lot of things all at once, but I'll go back and kind of refill some stuff in here. Sure. So the temporal realm then exists not just because of sin, but with a different role because of the sinful world. And that role now is to make sure that things don't get out of hand, to kind of keep a lid on sin, to keep a lid on injustice. And that's what the government is supposed to do. The government exists to help maintain the temporal realm until the day of Christ's full redemption. And it exists because God wants it to exist. Romans 13 is crystal clear on this. The government is God's government. It's God's design tool. It doesn't exist in spite of God's will. It exists because of God's will. So the government is there to do God's bidding. And what is that bidding? Not to proclaim the gospel, not to deliver forgiveness of sins, not to make people right with God, but to uphold God's law for the sake of the creation so that people are able to thrive and function and not live in fear and not be um, victims of injustice. The government is supposed to do that. So that means that when the government is functioning the way God intends it to function, it will be upholding his will, 
his law, not just human ideas, not what makes sense to people, but his law. And so his law is, in my book, nothing more than the natural law built into the creation itself, which man is supposed to be upholding, but rarely does. And many governments do a lousy job of it, but it doesn't deny the fact that this is what governments are for and what God has designed them for. So those are the two realms. They don't function in opposition. They're not in a paradox, like somehow they don't fit together. They fit beautifully together. They're doing two different things. One's upholding God's law, one's delivering the gospel. They are very complementary to each other. And so it's not like this pitched battle and a Manichaean fight of good and evil. The law, the government is not an evil thing. The temporal world is not evil or bad or tainted. It's God's realm. It's secular because it's part of the world, but it's not bad any more than the church is perfect because the church is made up of sinners too. So sin filters through both realms and both realms need God's um, presence to help redeem them. Now, having said all that, we've been to see how they kind of hold together. So what role does Christ play? Christ is the redeemer. He brings the gospel and Christ is the Lord of all creation. Even the secular realm, even when it doesn't know it, he is Lord, and as Philippians 2 says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They will all get it, one way or the other. And so Christ is Lord of all, even now, and it is his law, his will for his creation, which is manifest or must be manifest in the world. And that means part of the church's job vis-a-vis the world is not to stay out of the way, but to call the world to task so that it does a better job of holding God's law. That's one of the jobs the church has. So now I've gone fast and opened up all kinds of areas of this of further exploration, perhaps. But I hope that kind of gives a bird's eye view of the whole thing. It does. And trying to decide which one of these, you know, where in, in this maze do we want to drop down? <laughs> but yeah. so what I hear you saying, though, so two things that jump out immediately. So these are not questions, but but things that I, that I, that are important, that are in your book, and and you've said them here again. One is that Christ rules over both realms. Absolutely. So whether you want to say realms or kingdoms, there's one king over them. Exactly. And secondly, the two realms are not, they're not opposing each other in the way that Augustine's two cities oppose each other. That's correct. There's not an inherent conflict. And so I would make, you're making, you do a good job bringing up Augustine because um, Augustine's two cities are not the equivalent of the two realms. Right. Because his two cities, city of God and the city of man are, you know, you, you have the world, you have sent, you know, those who are wicked and will and will perish eternally, and and then you and, have the city of God, right? So, and because they are in contrast to each other. That's right. And this is this is parallel to kind of the distinction you have to make in the Pauline epistles as well, and in, in John to distinguish between is the world. Now, is the world here the object of God's love, like in John three sixteen, or is the world a problem? Like in the epistles where John says, you can't love the world. Well, wait a minute. You can't love the world and be a friend of the world, but God is. So what's going on here? So we have to make a clear distinction. Sometimes the scriptures talk about the world as 
God's creation and a good thing. Sometimes, often, in fact, the world becomes a stand-in for fallen world, man in rebellion, sinful man. Now we've got an issue. Now we have a contrast. But see, we have to be so careful not to assume that world always means evil. World is bad. No, it's not. Fallen world is a problem. And we have to be very careful when we're reading Paul and John to make sure we're reading which one's going on here. Because they will switch between the two of them very quickly. And you need to pay attention so you don't get really messed up. And I think, frankly, a lot of Christians get really messed up because they start to assume world bad, world evil, secular bad. And then everything starts to unravel at that point. Well, and so in in the the very last of your book, you you have... Uh, I, I'm trying to, I cannot remember the, the, the name of the chapter, but it's something like it's a, it's an essay on being American or, or something. Yeah, yeah. Like story that. time in America. That's great. Right. And, and I think you are the only Lutheran I've ever read who quoted N.T. Wright with, in, with any degree of appreciation. <laughs> you, you mentioned him because, and I'll say this, this was one of the early things that, that, that drew me though, to an appreciation of some of what he talks about, uh, what N.T. Wright talks about was yeah. that the world is not this thing that, that that God desires to kick to the curb. That's right. So, you know, you 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 say in the book that that's an important thing to consider. So, b- before we we start digging further into this, though. I want to go back to something you mentioned. You talk about at the very, I think, the first chapter. You, you differentiate uh, a binary and a duality. Yeah, yeah. So, talk to us about the difference between those two. Yeah, because that, that, that's an important tension that that we in the reformed world don't appreciate as much due to our emphasis on antithesis. Yeah, yeah. So many things are an antithesis. So describe what you mean by binary and duality uh, and why that difference is important. Part of this grew out of another concern of mine, which is law and gospel. And in my world, in in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, law and gospel are often pitted against each other and they get set up as a paradoxical relationship, as a as a binary kind of a thing, or as a, um, a, a polarity is the favorite term. That's what I'm opposed to. And see, now I'm applying the same truth in other places because I, I'm convinced that a big problem comes whenever we take one of these tensions that are established in reality and turn it into a polarity, we get into trouble. When we pit them against each other as antithetical, I think that's hugely problematic. And so that's what I'm getting at. So you're right. I would say that a a dualism or a tension um, or duality is better than even dualism. A duality is better. Isms always become problematic. Um, Right. So a tension is the better way to go. So the idea that we have a tension between the left and the right or the temporal and the spiritual, there's a tension there. But they're not opposed. And that's the key. So in other words, we're not setting them as a yin and yang or as a positive negative or a black and white. And that's what you start talking polarity. You start talking dualism. Uh, you start talking binary. And you end up in these kinds of it's either on or off. It's either black or white. It's either one or the other. And as soon as you start getting into that mentality, I think you really ruin theology. Because then you're picking one or the other. And if you, you try to drop law gospel into that, you're in trouble. Law bad, gospel good. Oops, 
Oh, I don't mean that. Well, you did. And that's the problem. And see, we do the same thing with the, with the temporal spiritual. Temporal, bad, spiritual, good. No, 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 no. Same with law gospel. Law is God's good will. It's only a problem when you mess it up. And the temporal realm is God's good creation. It's been broken by sin, but it's still God's good creation. And he's going to get it back. I mean, this is, this is why I invoke N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright's spot on. New heavens, new earth. Not leave it all behind, let it all burn. No, no, no. That's that's messed it up. Well, actually, so this <clears throat> this podcast will not go out probably for another week or two uh, yeah. after, after Christmas. But this past Sunday, I was preaching and and I preached about uh, first uh, excuse me second peter chapter 3 okay where where, where, the, where the fire of god comes but the point that i made to the congregation is that that fire that he's talking about at, well so so we just i trace the theme of fire from the very beginning when god says let there be light and how jesus himself is he comes and he comes to bring fire and he will baptize with, you know, and so on. I'm not going to read yeah. that here, but I believe that, that Peter's picture of the fire of God coming is not, as I said, he puts pours lighter fluid on us and throws a match and says, I'm glad that's over with. <laughs> nice image. The fire is when God himself comes to earth in the person of Christ. When, 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 when Christ comes, he brings fire, not when he came in his initial incar in his incarnation. Yeah. He came and, and he brought, I mean, even then he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. But when he comes again, he will bring purifying fire and then all things will be made new. So that fire is actually, at least the way I, I said it, it's good news. Yeah, yeah. What's dead and dying will be removed, and then what's what remains is, is the new heavens and new earth. In that's a that's a very nice move. I had not heard that reading of Second Peter before, and it almost saves it. Because <laughs> no, I, I really like I really appreciate that a lot to to equate the, the fire with Christ Himself, and that His return is in fact the fire. I, I think that's a very good move, and I like that a lot. And I I joke because um. When I get asked about this, my usual move is to say, well, Second Peter is um, probably um, not canonical anyway, so what's the big deal? And so <laughs> that's the move I'll make because Luther, make, Luther makes that move. And in my world, I can make that move and get away with it. Right, right. That, that, that is something that as, as a professor, yes, you can. So as a pastor. <laughs> I wouldn't go to the parish. I, I'm, I'm not going down that path. But, Don't. Uh, right. <laughs> But with that said, though, I mean, I'm, I, I'd struggled with that passage in Peter before. The, the yeah. only other interpretation I'd heard that, that I could go with was the, the, the preterist type of view that, that tries to minimize it. But frankly, that, that, that just does not fit for me. I would agree now either so anyway you know w w without going too far down that path the, the point that we can that we're definitely together on is creation is a good thing absolutely and, and and luther talks about the joys of creation i mean if there was a more earthy reformer i don't know who it was <laughs> i would agree with that absolutely right so anyway how then 
let's let's go back since we're talking now about Luther. How did Luther? What was the setting? The relationship of the prince and the priest yeah, yeah. in pre-Reformation Europe, and what did Luther's teaching? Uh, change in that relationship. Yeah, and I'm I'm not a historian or even a church historian, so I will, I'll claim you know don't don't pin me down, but I can think I can give a good thumbnail sketch of this, and the the context helps shed a lot of light on this and helps you understand a little bit what Luther is up to. So yeah, in the late Middle Ages, obviously we have a complete blending together of church and state. It's it's a big mess, and Luther talks about his imagery as you know cooking it all up in a, in a big stew and it's a big mess. And so he, and he's right. And so we have complete confusion between what the spiritual realm is doing and the temporal realm is doing. We've got bishops who have armies, we've got princes who are buying bishoprics and are supposedly leaders in the church. And it's just an absolute mess. And so Luther's first desire is to bring clarity. And that's why the distinction, get it straight, Prince, your job is to uphold the law fight for justice, take care of the marginalized. Huge thing for Luther, by the way, which we also tend to downplay because it almost sounds kind of socialist because he tends to lean in that direction, frankly, when you read him. Take care of the downtrodden, take care of the marginalized. That's your job, Prince. Fight injustice. Oh, and by the way, Prince, uphold the right teaching. He, he's not a big fan. Luther's not a big fan of um, religious liberty. Everybody can do their own thing. Oh, no, no, no. The Prince's job is to uphold good teaching and even to stop blasphemy. That's the prince's job. Now, what is the priest's job? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. That's your job, dude. Don't go out fighting armies. Don't try to run the world. You're not running the world. You're there to do the gospel. Don't forget it. Now, that brings clarity. Then Luther makes the next move. Now, if we have a situation where maybe the right realm is not doing its job and the church is failing to preach the gospel, and even though the church is being asked to preach the gospel, they won't, what, what do we do? Well, Luther's answer is, well, the prince can step in and help out. And that's why Luther makes this astounding move of inviting the secular rulers in to help reform the church. And people in the Anabaptist tradition go bonkers at this suggestion, just like inviting the fox into the hen house. And they just can't even fathom why Luther would do it. But understanding Luther's thinking, it makes complete sense. Because when one hand, when one realm is dropping the ball, the other realm steps in to help get the job done. So then conversely, we might say today, when the left-hand realm is not doing its job, is not upholding justice, is not taking care of the marginalized, is not fomenting God's will, the church can say, hey, left hand, get it together. Stop it. What you're doing is wrong. So is it right for the church to speak to the temporal realm and say, what you're doing, aborting babies, is sin. Stop it. Yeah, we can do that. When we look at their left hand and say, what you're doing with immigration and what you're doing in hurting families is wrong. Stop it. We can do that. When the left hand is redefining marriage and redefining fundamental things like a man and a woman, we can tell the temple realm, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Stop it. The church can do that. And we're not overstepping our bounds. We're not trying to enforce Christian morality. We're simply reminding the world what it's supposed to do, reminding it of God's law. That all works. And see, Luther then would actually encourage this. He talks about how the, the pastor is there to help hold the prince accountable and to hold him to task. And he even uses the imagery of a dog. And he like the prince is this dog and the club is laid next to the dog to remind the dog, hey, watch out, you know, stay in line. And the club is there to be the warning. And who's the club? 
the pastor of all things. You say, wait a minute, he's the gospel guy. Well, not in this context. In this context, he steps over into the left-hand temple room and says, hey, I'm here to do the law. Law means shape up, do God's thing, stop doing it badly. And so he's not there to preach the gospel. In fact, he's there to preach the law more clearly for the sake of the temporal realm. When someone repents, now it's time for gospel. And he can put on that hat. But he needs to be clear on what he's doing in each realm. The So this is where I mean, one of the many distinctions between what Luther was teaching, what you're referring to, and what um, someone well like the the radical two kingdom guys in Escondido, they don't have much to say out there for discipling the magistrates. Their their hands are tied. I mean, all, all we can do is gospel. That's we're, right. We're forbidden from touching the law. Whereas you're saying, and, and I, I mean, it certainly seems from, from the, the, the reading list that you've given of, of Luther and, and others, that all the reformers, this was, this is not just a, you know, j- just a, a Geneva thing. This right. Is, th- 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 this covers the Protestant, this is a pan Protestant view of God's law that the pastors, the priests are responsible to proclaim the law of God to civil leaders. Absolutely. And and the image that came to my mind regarding the hands was we never, I mean, if you ever tried to wash one of your hands by itself, it doesn't work. In order to truly wash your hands, you you have to put soap on them and you have to rub them together. Yeah, yeah. They're intended to work. Whereas we are taught that no, the church is is to be its own separate, never connected to anything else organization. That's really, I mean, for, for an American, that is that's mind blowing. Yes, it is. No, I, I agree completely. And so you, you, when, you're exactly right. You're making some nice connections here. So, and the Escondido theology, I'm not familiar with more of it than just um, Ben Drennan or Drunen. I'm not sure how you actually pronounce it. And his book on the two kingdoms is one of the things that prompted me, frankly, to write my book. Because I read his take on it, and I'm thinking he's not getting Luther right. He's not being fair to Luther. And that was one of my precipitating things that kind of drove me to write my book just to kind of help deal with that. I have no idea if anybody in that world's reading it, but <laughs> that's why I, I produced it. Well, someone in this world is reading it. Well, so, I mean, we, we, we're not fans of Escondido theology here. But again, p- part of my hope in, 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 in even in doing this podcast is to to help our people to see that th- that this is not something that just six Protestant church, you know, six Reformed churches believe. That this is something that that actually expands past den- mere denominational. That's right. That's and, right. And, and goes further. So, you know, some of the things that that you, I will not, I, I cannot give the entire quote here, but in your 
in your lectures, and, and, and I'll post the lectures that you did uh, during the COVID year on the podcast notes because that, I listened to those first. That's okay. the thing I listened to. And, and you brought up a quote from, Psalm, from Luther's commentary on Psalm 82 about what, about what the pastor's responsibility is, which I thought was, is one of the greatest paragraphs of pastoral theology I've ever read. Oh, that one about the, my pastor does not glitter. Yes. Yes. I love that quote. <laughs> that, that is just outstanding. It is. So, it is. I mean, I, so I've taken it to heart and, 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 and tried to, to just, you know, keep it in front of my, my eyes regularly. Now, with this view, one of the reasons Christians, certainly in the States, are nervous, besides the fact that from our, from our beginning as, as a country, we were, we've been taught, you know, we're Bill of Rights people that you have to have, even though it doesn't mention the separation, our federal government has been from its outset, not that they purposely did not embrace, not only did they not embrace a denomination, but I, I would say that they did not openly embrace the Trinitarian Christian faith. Amen. Quite now, right. Whatever, you know, there's reasons why, and, and if somebody wants to, wants to be very particular, they can say, well, it does say the year of our Lord. Well, there was, there was atheists writing, stuff like that as well. So, right. so that doesn't really answer very much. So, but Americans are, are, American Christians can easily say that the civil realm is only something to be feared mm. or lamented. Yeah. And I cannot remember, I think that you bring this up, but is, would you consider the, the, the civil realm, the temporal kingdom, a pre- or post-lapsarian, having pre- or post-lapsarian existence. And for everyone, pre just means before the fall, post-lapsarian, you know, after the fall. Yeah. How, how would you describe the, the realm there? Yeah, and this one, I, I've got an, a pretty strong opinion about this, but there's not even unanimity in my own circles on this one. And so I would contend that the idea of the temporal realm and even a government to guide the temporal realm is not a post-lapsarian in, in, um, innovation. That, in other words, had Adam not sinned and had Adam and Eve continued to live and produce children, would there have been a need to organize life in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden? And I would say yes. I don't think that somehow, oh, no, we're all perfect. We don't need to have any organization. No, there's an order. There's a way things work. And so perfection's got nothing to do with it. We just don't need to get things done well. That's the job of government, to make sure things are working the way they're supposed to. So I would say that that idea of oversight and care and direction is just part of the plan and how it works. Now, when sin comes, it brings another aspect to it. And then there's a new thing that has to be done, but it was there before. And so because you, know, you think about it at the other end of the eschaton, what will there be at this new heavens and new earth? We're going to have a new creation and Christ is Lord overall. But he also says that we are ruling with him and judging with him. So we have a role to play. What are we going to be doing? Are we just all doing our own thing? Are we going to be working in community together? I think we'll be cooperating. Will there be, need to be guidance and direction? 
Probably. What that means, I don't know. We'll wait and see. But I don't think we need to be so idea that this, oh no, any kind of um, order is inherently negative. It's not. The government has never lived up to what it should be. Neither has the church. Because we're all filled with sinful people. And we need to recognize that. But it doesn't negate the reality of each institution as God's plan from the very beginning. Right. And and something that I, I've wondered about w- with regards to that, because I agree with you. I mean, I, I believe that there was, that the institution of, uh, of the civil realm was before the fall. Yeah. But there was evil. I mean, Satan fell at some point before right. Adam Eve did. So, there and and it wasn't just like he was by himself and then and then then the, all the the one third j- just kind of waited to see what was going to happen and then they made their choice. I mean, if they did that, that that was really stupid. But <laughs> so 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 you have a significant portion of the heavenly host who have fallen already. So what makes us think that there was that there would be even if man had not fallen that we would not need any civil protection yeah. from, from that. Uh, again, I, 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 yeah. I realize, well, this is speculation and I'm, uh, I'm fine with admitting that, but, but I think that's, that's an important point because there are some who say, if, if you say that it government, civil government comes after the fall, then you necessarily have to say that it will be done away with. That's right. In the resurrection. That's right. And, that descend, that that seems to descend from uh, an egalitarian view. I'd agree. Which I would. I don't want to sound like that. This is me interviewing myself. <laughs> but, you're fine. <laughs> but but I, I'm having heated agreement with with so much of what you're saying because it is hierarchy is a gift. That's correct. And if you don't want, so one of the, the strangest looks I've ever received was when I preached from Ecclesiastes years ago in a Baptist church about uh, Solomon's words that it's a shame when a poor man rules and a prince does not. Yeah. And so that, but, but it, it, it demands that we answer that. So then, with, with the idea that hierarchy is a, is a good thing, let's talk about. Yeah. Well, I, let, let, let me interject this first. We'll get to, I, I want to, I'll talk about that. You're right. Because that's very important. But what you're getting at when you talk about how this ties into the hierarchy, it ties into order. Exactly. You see all of it hangs together and this is the way the good theology works. It all starts to kind of hang together. And so you end up talking about things like, man and woman and the relationship there. Well, I didn't talk about, you didn't talk mean to talk about that. You can't help it. It all starts to hang together. And even the idea of democracy somehow being holy and sacred. Well, not really from a scriptural standpoint, you recognize there are distinctions and you're right. The prince and the poor man are not equally qualified. There's different gifts. That's part of how God puts it together. And it's not bad. It's a good thing. And when you fit into where your place is, it's a good thing. Now people get scared and they start saying, oh, that sounds like it can be abused. Yes, it can. Has it? Yes, it has. But it doesn't negate the truth of what God has put together. Well, egalitarianism has been abused as well. Exactly. And I mean, so 
it's not only ripe for abuse, it's contrary to the order in which God made the world. I would agree. So, so, so doubly open. That's right. That, so what you're really identifying is that so many of the principles we hold sacred as Americans and we assume are Christian principles really have their foundation in other places, primarily the Enlightenment and the whole idea of man as the center. And that's where problems come in. And I'll just mention just to kind of backpedal on one thing or not backpedal, but just to trace back to one thing. You mentioned about how what well, does say in the year of our Lord. Sure. And you can quote biblical principles often in founding fathers documents were Christians involved. Absolutely. Were Christian ideas and principles at work? Yes. But it doesn't mean the foundation is Christian. That's that's what we need to make clear. Right. It, it, it was not. I cannot remember where I heard it, but but or read it. But somewhere, I, you know, I'd read and I taught history for a while in, in public school. So this is some of my background there. Yeah, yeah. It was the first sec, openly secular constitution. That's right. Of any country in existence. That's right. So regardless of whether or not the people, uh, the citizens were enlightened men and women, which I, I'd say that pretty good argument that they were not, thankfully, but many of the leaders were bringing in with them enlightenment principles. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you have uh, already successfully shot about 53 sacred cows uh, in, in our conversation. So <laughs> we, we can certainly take aim at a few more. <laughs> in the All right. Let's go to stations. You brought it up. Yeah, so, so t- talk about the, the role of stations. What are they and, and, yeah. and how do they relate to what were, you know, to this discussion of the realms? Yeah, they fit right in. And th- this is something Luther did not innovate. Um, this the idea of the stations or vocations grows out of a medieval idea of the estates. And the basic idea was that all the world can be divided into three big categories. You've got the home, you've got the state, the government, and you've got the church. And we'd say, well, okay, what about work? Well, in the Middle Ages, all work pretty much happened in the home. So you were either all working on the farm together or the merchant was all making the donuts together. Life was lived together. And so you had the home, you have the state, and you have the church, and that covered it. So then Luther's insight is, okay, this is how God works. And this is back to our ordering and structuring and a way of God's design. So God has designed it to be this way. And in each of these areas, God has established an institution to help make sure it works well. So in the home, it's called family. In the state, it's called the government. In the church, it's called the church, okay? Or in the spiritual realm, the church. And then he's also put people in areas of responsibility in each of these areas. So in the government, you have the prince. What's his job? Make sure the government functions well. In the family, you've got the father. What's his job? Make sure the home is functioning the way it should function. And Luther's crystal clear on this in the large catechism. It's how things are laid out. And in fact, Luther grows the government out of that fundamental relationship of the family. The one clear-cut, God-established relationship is husband and wife and kids, family. And everything else grows out of that. Schools, government, everything grows out of that basic structure, which is there to help take care of the creation. And then in the church, who do we have? We have the pastor. And the pastor is called to make sure that the gospel work is going on. That's his job. And Luther's clear on this. 
For Luther, this idea of this office or station was enormous. And he and this grows out of this German idea of this amt, A-M-T, you know, an office, an authority, an authorized, you know, not office as in place of study, but I have the office, the, the authority. And so the amt is important because that means the prince has the sword. He can use it for the sake of upholding justice. The pastor has the gospel proclamation, and he has the ability to forgive and retain sins. That's his responsibility. And the father has the aunt of father. He is the one who teaches his household, disciplines his children, forms and shapes them, and runs his household. He has that authority. Now, those are three clear stations or vocations from God. But then this whole idea of vocation just kind of mushrooms into all the other places. Every single person who's been created has vocations. He's been put into a place by God, born into a family, son or daughter, right off the bat, siblings. He's got parents. He's got friends. He's got responsibilities. He gets older. He gets married. Now he's got another vocation, another aunt as husband. And then he becomes a father, another vocation. And every one of those vocations fit into the sake for the sake of the temporal realm. Why do we do vocations? Not for God's sake, not to earn spiritual benefits, not to earn brownie points with God. I do my vocation for the sake of the world, for the sake of the neighbor. And so all these vocations fit into the well, the good functioning of that temporal realm that God has established. So then we even look at vocations like, oh, I've got things to do as a, as a husband. I need to go home and take care of my wife. That's what God wants you to do. I've got to clean the house, right? Rake the yard. Right. I've got to write an, ex an exam for my students to take because that's my job as professor. Right. All of those things are God-pleasing actions done for the sake of the neighbor in the temporal realm to fulfill the vocations God has given you for the sake of the temporal realm. They've got nothing to do with where I stand before God. That's all Jesus stuff. They have everything to do with what I do in the world. And so the stations, vocations grow out of and into my places in the temporal realm. And this one of the things when I, I teach economics um, to homeschool students, and one of the things I have them read a little, just a little bit of Luther. Okay. Uh, on on the the stations and the the principle that God's work, or excuse me, that that a baker's work baking bread is how God supplies the needs of his children. That God is working as I love my neighbor. It's God working in me. And th th so those stations all come together. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, here in a little bit, when you and I sit down to a meal, God will have provided our daily bread through truck drivers and mechanics and bakers and farmers and ranchers. And, and so and we could just name on and on. That's right. And he brings all this to bear. And this is how he shows he loves us by our doing our work. That's exactly right. So, man. Yeah, it's, it's great stuff. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's it. It's exciting to know that a father loves us like this. That's right. And we put all of these things together because he loves us. So let, let's look in, in the last little bit at 
a couple of different figures. One though being Bonhoeffer. Oh yeah. You you talk a good bit about Bonhoeffer in your book. Now for most evangelicals, and I'm contrasting here evangelicals with you know confessional Lutherans and others. Sure. But for most evangelicals, the Eric Metaxas biography is about the only thing they know. And, I, and, and I'm not sure, you know, whether you consider that, you know, that work good or not. And I'm, yeah. I'm you, you can certainly tell us, but you talk about Bonhoeffer. Oh, yeah. In, in your book. And because he had some scathing things to say in certain places about. Oh, yeah the realm about the teaching of the realms, but he also, he did not reject the teaching. So, so, so just tell us about Bonhoeffer and how he relates to the, the teaching of God's realms. Yeah. I, I enjoy talking about Bonhoeffer. Um, when I went through my seminary training to become a pastor, we didn't read Bonhoeffer at all. He wasn't mentioned except to warn us against cost of discipleship. And that. Okay. And that was that was it. So I've I've discovered him late in life. And the more I read him, I just I'm delighted by him. I think his not just because he is, you know, an interesting man because he stood up against Hitler. OK, that's that's great. And it is. But his theology is quite captivating. And I find it to be very faithfully Lutheran and, and it surprises some of my peers. But the more I read him, the more I, I'm convinced of this. So. But Bonhoeffer is, is significant, I think, in this re- regard, because this is the best it comes through in his ethics. And that's why I kind of unpack Bonhoeffer, because he really attacks thinking in terms of two spheres. And what he's going after is this kind of bifurcation, the very thing I'm after as well, the, the problem I see, because it leads to a quietism where you have the Christians simply saying, well, Hitler's duly elected. We've got to just go. We've got to support him. That's the government. And that's just nonsense. And Bonhoeffer will have none of it. So he categorically rejects thinking in terms of two spheres and calls it a horrendous problem. And he's correct. But then he turns right around within a few pages of that and says, but this is not what Luther taught. And it's not the teaching of the Reformation. And then what he upholds is precisely what I think Luther does teach, which is the government should be held accountable by the church, which is what Bonhoeffer is trying to do. Bonhoeffer speaks out against Hitler. He's one of the first ones to do it. Does it on a radio broadcast, gets cut off midstream. And this happens way back in the middle 30s. He's already doing this. Bonhoeffer was one of the first ones to recognize Das Führer is a problem. And he he is willing to stick, stick his neck out and call it a problem. I think that shows Bonhoeffer gets Luther right. He's not pushing against Luther. He's pushing against the Lutherans of his day and the, the bad application of Luther. Um, now, you mentioned Metaxas's biography. I've read it as well, and I've quite enjoyed it. And a lot of bon- and Metaxas gets a lot of flack because they think they're um, he's sugarcoating Bonhoeffer, making him too evangelical. I would contend that those who make that argument really aren't understanding Bonhoeffer correctly. Does okay. Bonhoeffer say some radical things? He does. And does he sound even like a death of God theologian? At times he sounds that way. But if you right. read him all the way through, he's not that. And I think he is at core quite evangelical, as in the gospel prevails. Jesus Christ died and rose. He's coming again. Bonhoeffer believes this. 
He believes these fundamental things. He believes you need to be made new through baptism. He believes you need to receive God's grace. He believes this stuff. And he also believes that the world needs to hear this message and needs to see the church living it out. So he says a lot of radical things challenging the superficial church of his day and the quietest church of his day. He says some very radical things. But I think at his heart, Bonhoeffer is the kind of pastoral, caring theologian that Metaxas describes. I don't think he's all wrong. Are there some parts Metaxas could have emphasized a little more? Sure, but I wouldn't say there's a fundamental flaw in the picture that um, he presents of, of Bonhoeffer. Well, so, so so now I know the proper way to pronounce his name. That's well, that's my name. pronunciation. Others do it other ways. I, I'm just doing it with the umlaut and kind of going a German way. Sure, but I've sure. heard it lots of ways. I, I'm, I'm no German, so... Uh, well, I'm told, I'm, I'm told the Germans would actually kind of do it, you know, and so they'd even make it. But I'm just kind of anglicizing it a little bit. Well, and I do appreciate that. <laughs> so w- one of your quotes, uh, which, which summarizes Bonhoeffer, is, quote, the church is not trying to conquer or win the world. Right. The church is not trying to suppress or stymie the world. The church seeks merely to witness to the world of the reconciliation of Christ and thereby to save the world, end quote. Yeah. Now, I really like that. Oh, amen. I know some of my friends will hear that and they will think that this is only a call to to be nice, to do good deeds, to tell people about Jesus, you know, it just per acts of personal piety. Mm. That, that's what they hear or that's what they will hear. So I'm pretty confident though, that that's not what he's saying, that that was not his message. So what does, you know, when the church does what he's talking about there in that she witnesses of the reconciliation of Christ and thereby saves the world. What does that look like in the public sphere? That is an excellent question. And you're right. One could read that quote and shove it through a mainline liberal lens, which you and I would both reject pretty categorically and say, Oh, see, it just means go out and, you know, love your neighbor and, you know, wave the, gay rights flag, and we're going to just do the loving thing, and that's going to save the world. And you could push Bonhoeffer into that lens, and obviously you're being a huge disservice to Bonhoeffer. He's he's not advocating that any more than Luther can. You can put Luther in that lens too, and it would be a misreading of Luther. So what I'd say is the witness looks like this. You have the church actively seeking to live the Christ-like life, to follow Jesus, cost of discipleship stuff. And what's that look like? It looks like deny yourself. Don't stand on your rights. You don't go running around trying to push your weight around and trying to claim your place at the table. You're just caring for the world and caring for each other and showing the world a a humble attitude of, I'm not sticking up for myself. I'm sticking up for God's reality. Now, we do that, but we do that and we do another thing. We, Whenever we get a chance, we speak of the reality of Christ, risen from the dead, coming again. He is the only hope of salvation. Bonhoeffer is clear on this. Only Christ. And, and Christ, the real Christ, not some kind of metaphorical image of just do the loving thing. None of that junk. It's the Christ who comes to judge and to redeem and to save that Christ. The one born of Mary, the one crucified, the one raised from the dead. 
tangible, literal resurrection, tangible, literal second coming, that Christ. That Christ must be proclaimed. So whenever we get a chance, we speak of that reality, which is the only hope of the world and the only thing that will save the world. But that message will fall on deaf ears if we don't have a credible witness behind it. If we look like self-serving pigs who want nothing more than to serve our own interests, who's going to listen to that message of the gospel? We will be dismissed. But when we have a compelling witness to the world of look how, see how they love each other. And then when we start talking about Jesus, maybe they'll listen. That's what Bonhoeffer's getting at. He talks about making the gospel not, not rational to the world, but credible to the world. And we do that by presenting the world a church that is not out looking for itself, but looking for the sake of the, the other. That's the witness we need to give. It's a both end. It's not just do the gospel proclamation, just pass out tracts, and it's not just go do social justice. No, we need to do caring for the world, which can look like social justice, but that's not the goal of the gospel. The gospel is proclaiming Jesus as the only means of salvation. It's both end. And I think the church needs to recognize both aspects of this and fully own it. Right. And and even when you say so social justice, I know that, that you're not talking about the you know, waving the rainbow flag. Amen. I'm not. <laughs> but but well, again, like someone like Luther who said, I mean, he just maintained, he maintained the usury laws, the laws against usury. His economics, as you said, was a, a his, his economic teaching, while not entirely systematic, would resemble something of a Christian version of Vermont. Yes. And, and, and that, so, so that is not pleasing to those who, who would be strict libertarians. That's right. Uh, because he, I mean, he said... A prince should have a community chest for the poor. Amen. That's right. So now, okay. 2022, America. We don't have a prince in the traditional sense of a prince. Right. We are a an attempt at a republic with a whole bunch of different states who all have varying beliefs and, and varying laws so it, it, the answer is not pietism for, for Christians. It, it, it's not to just stay inside your, your house or just inside your church and, and let the world burn. But it requires that pastors proclaim the law. And it requires that people serve faithfully. How would you fill that out more? So, so if you were to say two or three things that, that Americans should do in demonstrating our life in Christ in two realms. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the first thing is, you're right, we don't have this kind of a uh, pietistic, and that, that's fair, because the pietistic roots are there. Um, it manifests itself often in a very kind of what... Um, an Anabaptist way or what Niebuhr would have called Christ against culture kind of mentality, which is pretty common among evangelicals. If you're not going to be the transformist, then you're going to be duck your head and stay, you know, lay low and stay out of it. You know, and you get kind of a Benedict. I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not going to 
land-based Benedict option, but you get the kind of, uh, let's, you know, get out of here and go live on the commune somewhere. And that's not appropriate. Um, but see, I think what it looks like then is Christians are actively engaging the world in which God put them doing their vocations as family, in their families and in their jobs and in their schools and in their neighborhoods. Be part of the neighborhood association, run for a school board, be part of the local government, get involved in the world, make a difference, and especially where you can. Here's where the Catholic idea of subsidiarity is, is quite right. The local stuff is always the most important. Do what you can where you can. And so we should be invested in the world, but we're not thinking we're saving it or making it America. Christian world, or we're not trying to make a Christian America. We're just doing what we can to try to preserve it and maintain what's right. So we serve our neighbor well, and we embrace those activities. And yet at the same time, we recognize that they need Jesus more than they need anything. And so we look for opportunities in the context of those vocations to speak right. God's truth in the neighborhood association. To my friend that I've cultivated now, because we're working on a block party together. And then in the process, I invite into my church or I talk about why Jesus matters to me. And now it has credibility because of who I am as a person. That's the kind of interesting interface. I think it starts to look like that, that is helpful. And you know, th th there is a, there is an interesting contrast with how, you know, on one hand, we pray and, and, and desire that, that the, the civil realm be discipled, that it be faithful. And on the other hand, we are, while we push that, we do not, and, and you talk about this also in the book, we, we, we should not fear, say, losing our tax-exempt tax status. So, so, so we, we don't, we, we should not. And we, we honestly, there's no reason to worry. I mean, yes, it would be a financial loss, yeah. but, but, but it's not something to be feared. I mean, we're called to fear the one who can cast body and soul in hell, not the one who can kill the body. That's right. Yeah, no, exactly right. And so we don't have to live in, in fear of what might happen to us. We're God's people, and we know the outcome. And so this is the cool thing about the gospel, you see. If we take the gospel seriously, and we believe the Christ is coming, and we believe in the resurrection, everything else is now relativized in, enormously. So what do we have to be afraid of? Witness. And see, this is, this is kind of what's cool, too, and I didn't mention this before, but I should. This ties back to the early church. I think the, the, what I'm proposing and what I would say is consistent with scriptural is a scriptural way of doing uh, a living in the world in my vocations as opportunities to speak of Christ. That's exactly the formula the early church used. That's what they did. They loved each other. They lived as people apart. You read Paul's letters to these churches in Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica. What's he telling them to do? Be different. Be who you are. Don't be afraid to stand out. You don't fit in with the world, but you don't re abandon the world. Go and live in that world, but be who you are and make that witness. And, and that's what they did. And what happened? The church grew gangbusters to the point where Constantine said, fine, you can't beat them, join them. And he threw his lot in with them. So it only took 300 years and they, they beat a Rome. It's crazy to think about, but they didn't do it with the militia. They didn't do it by demanding their rights. They didn't do it with the program. They didn't do it by building bigger churches. They did it by living the Christian life and living it seriously in their vocations. That's how they did it. 
and it made an enormous impact. So we've got nothing to be afraid of. God's God. He's going to take care of us. And we can't diminish the, this, the importance of these seemingly small things that really are huge things. Hmm. This has been really good, Dr. Beerman. I appreciate the time you've taken. It's been clarifying, edifying, and a delight. So, so thank you for coming on. I would again say, everyone, if you get a chance, please uh, read Holy Citizens. And, and I know you've written some other books as well, one on virtue ethics, which I would love to read sometime as well, because again, virtue ethics is something many people think just has no place in Protestant theology because we have to reject all that. And, and you yeah. make a, a counter argument. So anyway, I would love to talk to you about that sometime. As yeah, well. maybe someday that can be next. It all ties together. Like I said, it yes. all ties together. And yes. Matt, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a blast. I love talking theology and these things I love talking about. And it's been a great delight for me as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. The Good Life Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy Got a Minute, theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people, featuring Rich Lusk and Larson Hicks.